So Angela, as you know, has just started with us as our new part-time women's outreach and discipleship worker. And, and we met her very briefly during the family service, and she got about 30 seconds uh, to sort of tell you a bit about herself. But what I wanted to do tonight is give Angela some time just to tell you her story, just so that you know a little bit more about her. Uh, and so Angela, it's over to you, and take as long as you want, as long as it's not too long. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, he told me that I've got 20 minutes. I'm only joking, yeah. <laughs> just over 10 minutes. So it's going to be a very broad overview of my life. Uh, so uh, before I, want, I begin, I want to share a quote by an early church father, Augustine, who said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And Augustine's life as a young man was characterized by loose living. However, he began to listen to different Bible teachers. But one day, while he was outdoors, he heard a child singing. And the child was singing words, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. And he realized that this song wasn't a game. And he thought that to himself, this must be a command from God. So he picked up his Bible and read it. And it was a scripture verse in Romans. And he was convicted of his sin and immediately turned to Christ for salvation. Now, looking back on the years prior for me becoming a Christian, I can relate to Augustine's uh, quote about my heart being restless, but also about his conversion. So many of you know I grew up in Rathcool Estate. Probably I think it's the largest estate, or it was once the largest estate in the United Kingdom. My family weren't Christians. I I didn't go to church. My family didn't go to church. I didn't go to Sunday school. I didn't go to any organizations. I just played in the street. Sunday's worth that. Uh, we lived in close proximity of Rathcool Presbyterian, and I used to see people going to church, and they looked like good people, and they wore nice clothes. Even though my mom wasn't a Christian, she did bring us up right, and she, we were brought up in a good home. But the only thing I knew about God was when she quoted the Ten Commandments. And she would have quoted things like, don't take the Lord's name in vain, or thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not kill. And I think she was trying to instill some sort of moral values, even though she wasn't a Christian. So from an early age, I thought that church was for good people. And I wasn't certainly a good person, and I didn't feel good enough. So I never actually thought about church at all in my childhood. As I reached my teens, as soon as I started secondary school, Hopefield Secondary it was then, and I think they called it Newton Abbey High when I left, became a high school. So uh, I was quite annoyed about that, you know, because I thought, oh, it'd be nice if it was there, a high school then. Uh, But I went to Hopefield, and as soon as I started school, the very first day I started smoking, that was the thing to do. We all stood and congregated in the shelters. And someone gave me a cigarette, which I coughed myself through it. But then I ended up being quite a heavy smoker. I probably, before I became a Christian, I was smoked about 30 cigarettes a day. And I also started drinking. And we used to stay at, stand outside an off-license most weekends and ask someone of the age, would they get us a carry-out? 
So we, sit, we stood in street corners and we would have drank cider or wine or whatever we could get our hands on. And uh, so that just progressed throughout my life. And as I reached my late teens, and as soon as I could get into bars, um, as soon as I looked like 18 by putting on a bit of makeup, uh, I started frequenting bars and nightclubs in Belfast. I don't know if anybody of you know them, but I used to go to the Elbow Rings and a, a nightclub next door called Pips International. I don't think it's there anymore. I haven't looked to see. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But anyway, uh, we thought we were, you know, that was us living it up because it was on the Dublin Road and we thought we were, we were mixing with the more uh, nicer people that, you know, we didn't want to go to the, the pubs near Rathkill or, or Monkstown or the estates, but we, we would go to the Dublin Road because we wanted to, to, to be among a better class of, of drinkers. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a good night then was uh, defining how drunk you'd got. If you couldn't remember the night, then that was a good night. But most Sundays, I spent in bed nursing a hangover, uh, probably skint as well, and to be honest, depressed. What I was looking for and what I I was searching for every weekend uh, wasn't happening. And uh, I just began to become more and more disillusioned with life. I remember one night standing in uh, Pips International nightclub, and looking all around me and thinking, there has to be more to life than this. Friends, relationships, all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to detail, but people had let me down. And I began to feel really disillusioned. But I believe that this was a pivotal moment in my life. At the age of 22, I had my first child. And uh, my mum had become a Christian. And I began to see a real change in her life. I also was working then in a part-time in a accounts uh, department on the Shore Road. And uh, I had a cousin there who worked alongside me. And I really, I don't know, looking back, I don't know how she actually stuck me. Because I had a foul mouth. I smoked, and it was the times that you could smoke anywhere. You could smoke on the buses outside, in a restaurant, in your office. There was no non- non-smoking signs up. And I smoked in with her and I, I even now I just realised how did she stick it and uh, she was a Christian and she would talk to me about Jesus and uh, even though I was searching inside I didn't let on to her that but I was really rude to her I remember her saying to me you know Jesus has done so much in my life and I looked at her and I said well that's good Anne but your Jesus hasn't done anything for me and uh, <laughs> You know, I can't actually believe I said that, but that's how I was putting on this exterior, this hard person, and, uh, you know, she never even retaliated in any way. She just carried on working, and she would have occasionally asked me, why don't you come to church with me? But each time I just declined, and I said, oh, no, I says, "I, I couldn't go. I have nothing to wear, and I used every excuse I had. But I I thought to myself, well, I couldn't go. I drink, I smoke, I have a foul mouth. Um, I do all the things that, you know, aren't good enough. And uh, church, you know, they wouldn't let me in the doors if they really knew what I I was like. So uh, anyway, uh, that was it. You know, I just went on with, with it and she kept on witnessing to me. 
But then one day, out of the blue, my sister, who wasn't a Christian either, none of our family were Christians, said to me, Angela, would you come to the wee Sunday school with me, the wee gospel hall? It's prize-giving day and, you know, you know, just to give me some moral support. So I thought, okay, then, well, I'll, I'll go. And so I, I brought my wee child, my wee daughter with me and we went to the, the gospel hall for the prize-giving and my daughter absolutely loved it. And she loved the singing. And I thought, oh, this is really great for her. And uh, I, I wanted, deep down, I wanted to give her a better life than what I had. And so uh, I said to one of the men, could I bring her on a Sunday to the Sunday school? And they said, of course you can, but only one thing, you're going to have to be there too, because she's too young. You know, she's too young. And I thought, oh, right. And I thought, well, okay, then, uh, can I come too? And they said, oh, yes, you can come. So I went to that Sunday school every Sunday for a year. And the next prize given day, they give me a prize. <laughs> and I thought, oh, goodness. And they give me a Bible. And I remember going up and getting it and thinking, oh, dear. And I went in to work to my, my, my cousin. And I said, you'll never guess what happened to me yesterday. I says, they give me a prize. They give me a Bible for attendance. And uh, she says, well, I hope you open it up and read it. You know, just don't let it sit there on the shelf. And I thought, oh, here she goes again. But the Lord was really beginning to work in my life. And uh, anyway, one day, I still didn't feel good enough. And I remember there was a man at the door. And he was so lovely. He was so godly. And every time I would go on a Sunday, he would give me a really strong handshake and say, it's lovely to see you. And I thought, if you knew what I was like, if you knew that I'd been drinking last night, and if you knew that on the way up here, I had a cigarette and popped a polament in my mouth so you wouldn't smell my breath, would you really welcome me here? Because after all, church and gospel halls are just for good people. They're not for the likes of me. And so I thought, someday I'm going to be found out. And what's he going to say then? Is he going to let me in? But anyway... That soon changed because one Sunday I was sitting in that gospel hall and they started singing a wee course. And this is how I can reflect and relate to St. Augustine. They started singing, Jesus loves the little ones like me, me, me. And I was sitting with my wee girl on my knee and I looked down and thought, well, how could he not? How could Jesus not love the little children? They're so innocent. But then this little girl turned round and the course went on and says, Jesus loves the older ones like you, you, you. The older ones like you, he'll save you through and through. Jesus loves the older ones like you. And I, I had never been told that before, <laughs> that Jesus loved me. And I just sat and I was horrified in a sense. And I went, loves me? How could he love me? And that moment, I said, well, Jesus, if you love me, then come into my life and, and change it, because I have made a mess of it. And at that moment, I just burst out crying, run out to the toilets with all these women behind me. And they were going, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I said, I need to speak to Jim, the man on the door. And they went and they got him. And I couldn't believe that they were being so so good about it, you know, just running and getting them for me. I felt like, oh goodness, they're listening to me here. So they ran and got him. And anyway, I uh, 
I, I said to him, Jim, and I told him what had happened. And he says, well, you don't need me. He says, you've asked Jesus into your heart. He says, now go and tell your friends and your family what you've done. And I thought, oh, right. <laughs> really? Can I not just keep it a secret? And I remember telling my mum, who was so delighted. And then I told my cousin in work, and she was over the moon. And she says, I told you now. And, uh, but then I remembered that I had arranged to go out that weekend with some of my friends to the pub. And I thought, oh dear, how am I going to tell them? And I was, I was so dreading it. And anyway, but I went to them and I said, listen, you know about Friday night? And they went, yeah, 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 we've got a taxi booked and all and all sorted. And I says, well, I'm not going. And they said, well, you're not going? And I said, no. I says, I've become a Christian. Well, they laughed and roared about. And they says, look, why up? Why up now? You're having us on. And I says, no, no, honestly, I've become a Christian and I'm, I'm not going to those places anymore. And... Uh, they just looked at me, and I think then it twigged on them that I was, I was actually telling the truth. And they said, well, do you know what? We'll wait the Friday night, because we'll see you there. You'll change your mind. And I says, no, I'm not, honestly. And Friday night came, and I didn't change my mind, because at that moment, I became a disciple of Jesus. And my life just changed. You know, I became a new creation. And uh, <clears throat> anyway... Uh, You know, that, that was the start of a change in my life. Um, my husband, he had got saved around the same time. And we, we just were sold out for Jesus, to be honest with you. We couldn't get enough of God's word. And I was going into work, and I was being the one that was telling everybody I was worse than my cousin. And I was going to the canteen with my Bible and everything. And I was saying, you know, uh, you know, I wish I could just leave work. I want to quit work because I just want to sit and do Bible studies every day. And uh, but obviously that didn't happen. But since then, I can just see how God worked in my life. And I know that I lost friends. And actually, through the years, I, I actually got them back again. And I, I now, one has since become a Christian herself. And it's just I've really proven God's faithfulness from that time. After um, I had some health issues, I went to the doctor and uh, they told me I couldn't have any more children. And the doctor said, thank God for that little girl. And I do thank God for her because only for, for her and for me going to the Sunday school, I would never have got saved. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, I, I, so I said to my husband, they've told me that I can't have any more children. And he said, well, there's a higher authority than that. And uh, anyway, I went on to have three children in 23 months. <laughs> uh, so uh, I just, the doctor kept putting exclamation marks behind it. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so God had a different thing. But anyway, I reared my children and I worked part time and I ended up working in church house, which was called then. And uh, I worked as a, the as secretary for the financial secretary, Clive Knox, for 13 years. And then uh, I left and I decided that I would go back and do some studying. And I went to Belfast Bible College and I did three years of the Women's Study Fellowship on a Monday. And after when I was doing that, then I decided that I would go on and 
a couple of lectures says why don't you go on and just do a degree and I thought hey, me you know all my qualifications are secretarial you know I'm not academic at all and uh, but anyway I says okay I'll give it a go and so that was that was that you know I ended up uh, doing the theology degree and graduating this year and that has led me to this place so God really has has been gracious to me and when I look back you know uh I think about the times that I didn't feel good enough for church. I didn't feel good enough as a person. And I can honestly say that that hasn't changed. I still don't feel good enough. But the only thing that has changed is that God showed me that those people that dress nicely and went into Rathcool Presbyterian were just sinners like me. All have, have uh, sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And that helped me to say, well, hold on a wee minute. It's not about my background. It's not about that I lived in Rathcool. It's not about that I didn't consider myself clever or that I had a particular career or a position in society. It's not about any of that. It's not about all the bad things that I have done or maybe the good things, but it's all about grace. It's all about Jesus. And it's all about what he has done for me through the cross and his resurrection. So in closing, I'm thankful for God, for those work colleagues that persevered with me through those horrible days that I was so nasty. <coughs> I thank God for that godly man at the door who shook my hand every week and made me feel so much welcome. And I thank God for that little girl who was singing that day and pointed to me and said, Jesus loves me. And so after 30 years... I want to say to you that Jesus loves you. And I don't know how you are tonight, if you are restless, if you are looking in all the wrong places still. But all I can say is, from I've got saved, my restless heart doesn't wander anymore. I am complete in Christ. And, you know, so I'm thankful for God for that. And so I as... In my role here, trying to reach out to the community with the love of God. You know, I want to encourage myself and I want to encourage you that God can use ordinary people like you and I to reach the lost. He can use the person who welcomes you in church with that handshake or someone who invites you to church or a little child in the Sunday school. God can use anybody. I love the verse that says, I think it's Sammy, it says that out of the lips of infants he has perfected praise. And only for that little girl that day, turning round and pointing to me, Jesus loves the older ones like you, you, you. I honestly think that I mightn't be sitting or standing here tonight. So thank you for listening. Let's pray as we come to look at this part of the Bible. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and is useful for all sorts of things. And Lord, tonight we pray that as we consider what your living word says, that you, the living God, would speak to us by your spirit. Encourage us tonight. Challenge us tonight. Shape us tonight. But most of all, would we leave here tonight knowing that we've heard from you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, whenever I was at university in Newcastle, our church, it was a church plant. It was a newly formed church. 
and it met in a coffee shop. And so on Sunday, when you went, it was set out like this with kind of rows facing the front and the pastor would preach and there'd be music. But during the week, it was a, a functioning coffee shop. And so there were tables and there was baristas and it was a brilliant place. And what we found is that during the, the week, and especially at weekends, we would get a whole lot of young people coming in. But the young people who came in, let's just say they were alternative. Loads of them were goths. You know the guys who have the black hair and the whited out faces and the black eyeshadow? Those type of guys. And then another group of people that we had coming were the fascists. The skinheads. I'm not even joking. We had the skinheads of Newcastle coming to our coffee shop during the week. And, and Newcastle, it's a really student city. We had a lot of students in our church. And so students like me during the week would go along and we'd speak to these young people and we'd interact with them and we'd get to know them. And there was one guy I got to know and I spent three years, like I knew this guy for three years, and I never got his real name. All I knew him as was Sniper. And when he asked them, why are you called Sniper? He said, because, Marty, whenever I'm, whenever I'm an adult, I want to join the British Army and I want to be a sniper. And he wasn't kidding. And if you'd met Sniper, he'd the shaved head. He had the camouflage bottoms. He had the black bomber jacket. He had the DM boots. He was a skinhead. And he was very open about it, very proud about it. If you weren't white, he was against you. That was just the way it was. But, um, you know, I'm one of these people. I can get on with most people. And so I was able to get on with, with Sniper. And we built this friendship. We built this relationship. And then one day I said to him, Sniper, I said, do you fancy, I don't know, meeting now and again and actually looking at the Bible and, and looking at what God says in the Bible? And he says, yeah, I'm up for that. I don't think he had anything else to do. It was great. So again, with the time I had at university, I met with this guy. And we met weekly for, for a long, long time. And in some ways, it was brilliant because for the first time ever, Sniper is, is looking at the Bible and he's seeing who Jesus was. But at the same time, it felt like I banged my head off a brick wall for three years. Because every single time, we'd finish the conversation. He says, Marty, he said, I'm, I'm, it's really good, good to know what you believe. Glad to know what the Bible says. But listen, he says, my Bible's mine come. He says, ah, this is me through and through. I'll never change. This is me. Here's a guy, and for three years, banged my head off a brick wall. Here's a guy who will just never, ever become a Christian. Here's a guy who I think of as being beyond God's reach. And I'm sure you've got people like that in your life. People who, whenever you really think about them and you're really honest, you think of them as being beyond God's reach. Maybe you've got family members like that. Maybe you've got work colleagues like that. Maybe you've got neighbors like that. But we've all got those people, don't we? We've all got those snipers. Those people who we think of as being beyond the reach of God. And you see, it's like God knows this. It's like God knows that this is how we're going to feel sometimes. It's like God knows this is what we're going to think of people sometimes, whether we want to or not. He knows that this is the reality of our hearts and our minds. And so what God does is in the Bible, he gives us parts of the Bible like Joshua 2 and 6 to remind us, to really strongly remind us that no one is beyond the reach of God. That's what these two chapters are about. They're there to remind us very loudly and very clearly 
that no one is beyond the reach of God. If you were here last week, you saw that we we started Joshua chapter 1 and the people, they've been on this journey for a long time. God had promised them back in Genesis chapter 12 that he was going to give Abraham's descendants the promised land. They, They walked towards it. They got out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years and finally they're on the edge of the promised land. They're about to go in. And God had said to Joshua last week, he says, you need to be courageous because you're going to have to fight when you go in here. But don't worry, I am going to give you the courage you need. So that's the context. They're about to go into this land. And the city that they're going to target first is a big city called Jericho. It's a powerhouse in the land of Canaan. And if you think of it from a military point of view, if they take Jericho, if they take this big city, the rest of Canaan, the Canaanites are going to panic. They took Jericho, we've no chance. God says to them, I want you to go in and I want you to take Jericho. That's the first city on the hit list. And so what does Joshua do? He's now the military commander. If you remember from last week, he took over from Moses. And so what does Joshua do? Well, he does what any good military man does. He sends spies into Jericho just to find out a bit about it. How, how, you know, how many inhabitants has it got? What are their, the strong points? What are the weaknesses? He sends out a, a group of spies, two spies, to go into Jericho and spy it out. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you've been here through the last year as we've gone through Genesis, do you remember last time they did that? It was a disaster, wasn't it? Do you remember Moses sent spies into the land and they came back and everyone gathered around them and said, what's it like, what's it like? And they said, they're very big. Big men, big walls, big cities. We're like we grasshoppers compared to them. There's no chance we're going to win. And so what did they do? They didn't go in and take the land. Now, Joshua, he's a lot smarter. If you look at the passage, look at there. We're told in verse uh, chapter, in chapter 2, verse 1, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shechem. So they're in a secret. They're secret agents. He doesn't announce it. He doesn't say, I'm spending spies, and he doesn't want this to happen again. So he sends these two men in secretly. They're undercover spies. They're going in to be kind of undercover and spy out Jericho and see what it's like. But they're not very good spies. In fact, they're completely and utterly rubbish spies. Because if we're going to see in a minute, they get found out that they're in there on day one. But before we see them getting found out, we find out something a little bit surprising about these spies. If you have a look again at verse 1, do you see where they go to? (laughs) Do you see where they stay? Look at verse 1. Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go and view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Here's these two young men, and they go in to spy out Jericho. And they stay in the house of a prostitute. Now, before you panic, it's maybe not as bad as it sounds. So what would have normally happened in Jericho was there would have been B&Bs. And if you imagine that for for guests to come in, they'd stay in these B&Bs. And as we found out last week, one of the reasons why God was going to destroy Canaan was because of how sexually kind of immoral they were. And so really at all of these B&Bs, there'd normally be a prostitute around who a person could use or not use. It made good business sense. And so the fact it says that these two men went to the house of a prostitute called called Rahab, it doesn't mean that they're going there to do what you do in a house of a prostitute. It means they're probably just going there to, to stay there and that the owner of the place is a prostitute. 
But anyway, that's where they end up. They end up in the house of Rahab the prostitute. And to the first readers, to the first readers of this book of the Bible, to the Jewish nation, to those who were religious and had very high sexual morals, Rahab was exactly the type of person who they thought should have been destroyed. She was exactly the type of person that they thought deserved the wrath of God, deserved to be driven out of the land, or deserved to be hit with the sword. Why? Well, a number of reasons. First of all, she's of the wrong people. She's a Canaanite. She's a Canaanite. She's not an Israelite. She's not one of God's people. She is a Canaanite. She is one of the wrong people. Second of all, she has the wrong profession. She's a prostitute. She's a sinner. She entices married men to come and commit adultery. She seeps with men who are not her own husband. In her own, in, in their mind, when they look at this woman, they see a, a sinner. Wrong people, wrong profession, and also wrong God. She worships the wrong God. Very often, if someone's name began with an R-A, Ra, Rahab, they would be worshippers of the sun god in Egypt, the god Ra. Now, we don't know for sure she might have been a worshipper of this god because it's interesting she knew what had happened in Egypt. She knew that the Israelites had done there what God had done to the Egyptians. She's in touch with Egypt. So maybe she worshipped the god Ra, but if not, she certainly would have worshipped one of the Canaanites' gods. Maybe Molech, the god who had child sacrifices made to it. But whatever god she worships, Here's a woman that in the mind of these religious Israelites, these people who were God's people, these people with high moral standards, in their mind, this is a woman who deserves the wrath of God. This is a woman who deserves to be driven out from the land. Wrong people, wrong job, wrong God. But Whenever the spies go into the land, this is the person whose company they're in. This is the person they meet. And what's really interesting is that even though this woman is of the wrong people, the wrong God and the wrong job, she does something amazing for these spies. She does something absolutely incredible for these spies. What does she do? Well, she saves their life. She simply saves their lives. You'll see in verse 2 that the spies weren't very good. They've been in there for, I don't know, a matter of hours maybe, maybe a day. And look at verse 2. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So they've been found out within a matter of hours or a day. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. Now I want you to look at that verse again. The king of Jericho sends men. The man who rules the city, the most important ruler in that city, he sends his honchos to Rahab's house and he knows that the men have been in her house and he says to her, bring them out here. Can you think what would have happened to Rahab if she had lied and then had been found to be lying? Can you think what would have happened to her? Let me tell you what would have happened to her. She would have been executed. She would have been executed right there on the spot. 
Think of Nazi Germany. There were some brave men and women who hid Jews in their homes, weren't there? They hid the likes of Anne Frank. They hid hundreds, maybe even thousands of Jews from the Nazis. And we know what happened to any who were caught, don't we? They were executed, sent to concentration camps. They were, they were put down. And this is the same context. This is exactly what would have happened to Rahab if she was caught with these men in her house, hiding them. Having said they weren't there, she was going to be killed. And yet, look what she does. Verse 4. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And then she said, True, the men came here, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you'll overtake them. But she brought the men up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she'd laid in order on the roof. Isn't that amazing? Risking her own life for these two men. She hides them and saves them from death. Why? Why does she do that? She's a Canaanite. She's no allegiance to the Israelites. She's of the wrong profession. She would have been looked down upon by these men who were much more holy than her. Why did she do it? She had no allegiance to the God of the Israelites. She was a, a worshiper of Ra. That's how she was brought up anyway. So why did she do it? Why does she hide the spies? Well, the text tells us that she did it for three reasons. Because one, she had heard. Two, she knew. And three, she believed. She heard, she knew, she believed. Have a look at the text with me. Have a look at verse 10. Because there what we're going to see is that Rahab, although she was of the wrong profession, although she was of the wrong people, although she was of the wrong religion, she had heard of God's mighty acts. No one had ever preached there, but yet she'd heard about God and what he'd done. Have a look at verse 10. She says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. This woman had heard about God. She'd heard about his acts. But she also knew something. And again, something she might not have been told specifically or explicitly, but she knew something. What did she know? She knew God's judgment was coming. She knew God's judgment was coming. And again, we see that in verse 9. I know, do you see that? I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. I know that you're coming. And I know God sent you, and I know that God is going to bring this place to destruction, and I know that we're all going to be wiped out. I know God is angry with us. I know he hates the sexual sin in this city. I know he hates the child sacrifice. I know we deserve this, and I know that judgment is coming. She knows. But she also believes. She's also believed something about God. 
What has she believed? She's believed that the God of the Israelites, the God of heaven and earth, the, the God of the Bible, she believes that this God is the one true God, the God of heaven and earth. And again, you can see that in verse 11. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It's amazing, isn't it? Here's this woman, and from the outside, it looks like she's doomed. Here's this woman who, if we were to look at her today, we'd say, well, she's of the wrong people group. But she's certainly of the wrong job. And she's certainly of the wrong religion. And yet, what about her? She's heard about God's mighty acts. And she knows, she knows that judgment's coming. And she actually believes that, that the God of the Bible is the one true God. She's heard, she knows, she believes. And that's why she hides the spies. That's why she does it. If God was going to bring judgment on Jericho and on her, and she believed in him, then, then maybe he would save her. Maybe this would show that she actually wants to be on God's side. Maybe this would show that she wants to be on the winning side. Maybe this would show that she really does want to make an allegiance to the God of the Bible. And so she saves them. She hides them. She sides with the God of heaven and the king of Jericho. She hides with, sides with the two Israelite spies and the people of her city. And having declared to the spies then what she heard and what she knew and what she believed, she then asks for mercy, doesn't she? Having told them what she's heard and knows and believes, she then says, listen, will you have mercy on me? Will you have mercy on me? Whenever you come, whenever you come to destroy the city, would you save me and my family? She asks for mercy. She pleads for this mercy. And you see, what this woman knows is she knows that they're only going to be able to show mercy if God decides that's okay. They must do the will of God. She can only be saved if God decides to save her. She can only receive mercy if God decides to be merciful, but she pleads for it. And she says to them in verse 12, have a look at me. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, so also you will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save me alive and my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She pleads for mercy. She pleads to be saved. Rahab knew enough about God to know that as well as hating sin and bringing judgment, God is a God who is gracious and merciful. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I know he hates sin. And yeah, I know he brings judgment. But I've heard he's very gracious. And I've heard he's very merciful. And I'm asking for that mercy. I'm asking for that grace. And so she lets them down. They say, yes, we're in. But of course they're going to say that, aren't they? They just want to get out of there. Yes, no problem. Whatever you want. Whatever you want, love. You know, let's get us out of here. And she lets them down and, and they escape. But we don't really know what's going to happen. Is God going to show this woman mercy and grace or is he going to just judge her? Well, in verse chapter 6, we find out, don't we? Because they go and they, they march around the city and they do exactly what they're told to do. 
They go around seven times on the last day and they blow the ram's horns and the walls come down and they go in and they take everyone. They devote the whole city and the animals to complete another destruction. But what does Joshua say? He says, the Lord's going to have mercy on that lady. Go and get her. Go and get her and bring her out. Go and get her and her family and her, her sons and her husbands and whoever else is there. Go and get them. And bring them out. That word mercy, it's a word that we hear quite a lot in church, doesn't it? And what mercy is, is mercy is whenever someone is not punished how they deserve to be punished. That's mercy. So it's someone who is is caught speeding by the police officer. And what they deserve is they they deserve the three points, don't they? They deserve the 60 pounds fine. But when they receive mercy, they're not punished how they should be. That's mercy. But did you know there's a difference between mercy and grace? Did you know there's a difference between mercy and grace? You see, mercy is whenever you're not punished how you should be. But grace is when you're given something more that you don't deserve. Imagine the speeding scenario again. Mercy is whenever the policeman says, you don't have to pay the 60 quid, you're not going to get the three points in the license. Do you know what grace is? It's whenever he takes out his wallet and gives you 60 quid. It's, it's beyond mercy. It's something that's completely undeserved. It's something so far beyond what you could ever imagine. It's so far beyond what you could ever get your head around. And what I love about this story of Rahab is that she doesn't just get mercy. She gets grace. She gets way, way more than mercy. You see, what they could have done was they could have saved her and said, okay, on you go, love. Away you go into the desert there. Make a new life for yourself. Best of luck. But did you notice at the end of chapter 6? Did you notice what she gets? She gets to be one of God's people. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. That's mercy. But now look at this. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. See what happened there? Suddenly this woman who was of the wrong people is now one of God's people. Suddenly this woman who was of the wrong religion has now been brought into relationship with the one true and living God. See what's happened? Here's this woman who is far beyond the reach of God by the Israelite standards. This woman who's just far beyond the reach of God. This woman who, let's face it, let's be really honest, if we met her today, if we met a prostitute from the wrong religion and a different race who lived on Ravenhill Avenue, would we not think that? Oh, there's someone beyond the reach of God. And yet here she is at the end having received mercy, having been given grace, having been given a new community, having been given a new life. And what's lovely is if you look up Rahab in the New Testament, she's classed as a woman of faith. And you know what else? If you read Matthew chapter 1, she's in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. God used her. 
saved her, brought her into a family, gave her a new life and used her. And used her mightily. It was um, the summer after I'd finished university and I was done. And Em and I were getting married that summer. We were in Debenhams in Castle Court. We were in the shoe department. It was the women's shoe department. They weren't looking for shoes for me. And um, I was bored to tears. And my phone rang and it was a phone number I didn't know. And I answered it. And um, it was Sniper. He said, Marty, I'm ringing to tell you I've become a Christian. <laughs> I kind of thought, oh, here we go. What's happened, Sniper? He said, well, he said, um, the, the church did like this music thing and it went along. And he says, the guy who was talking was really good. <laughs> and he says, you made it all really simple. And he says, I, 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 I give my life to the Lord. And I thought, there we go, three years of banging your head off the wall. But, <laughs> but, he, but he told me this. And... Um, and, and, and I hung up the phone and I, and I was thrilled. But honestly, cynical. Absolutely thrilled, but absolutely cynical. Why? Because Sniper is beyond God's reach. Um, six months later, uh, during her first year of marriage, Emma decided to get us a trip for Valentine's Day. And she said, Marty, we're going to Israel. And I said, oh, that's brilliant. She said, no, I was only joking. I was trying to say somewhere I didn't think you'd want to go. We're actually going to Newcastle. <laughs> I said, totally wrong. Anyway, so we went to Newcastle and um, we went to the church where we'd gone. And went in and there, there he was. There was Sniper. Different man. There was Sniper, friends with this Chinese girl, Becky. There was Sniper reading his Bible. Rough around the edges, absolutely. But there was Sniper. Someone beyond God's reach. Someone who God reached. And folks, maybe tonight is just the only thing that I want to encourage you with. is not only through the Bible, but through real life, even through Angela's story. No one's beyond the reach of God. No one. No one. Those people that you thought of when I asked you the question. Those people are hard. Those people who've got serious problems. Those people who seem so anti-God. If God so wants to, he can just invade their lives and transform them totally. And so I want to encourage you with that. No one is beyond the reach of God. Let's pray together. Father, none of us deserve the mercy of forgiveness. We've all fallen short. We fall short every single day. But we thank you that the church is a perfect place for imperfect people like us. And we thank you for the forgiveness that you've given us in Christ. We thank you that our record is clean. Thank you that on that day of judgment, when we stand before you, Christ will appear our righteousness. And we will be set free and not condemned. And Lord, we thank you too that we've not only received mercy, but we've received grace. Thank you that we belong to you. Thank you that we have a church family to belong to. Thank you that we have each other to be encouraged by and to encourage. Thank you for all the blessings that you've given us in our lives. 
Lord, thank you not only for giving us mercy, but also for giving us extravagant grace more than we could understand or comprehend. Lord, we would pray that you would give us confidence that no one is beyond your reach. Lord, we pray that we won't just believe that with our minds, but that our prayers and our words and our actions would reflect that. Oh Lord, give us boldness to pray for the salvation of the lost, especially those who seem far from you. Give us boldness to have those conversations in the office like Angela had with her friends, to tell people about Jesus, to be open about our faith, knowing that you can take even our most feeble conversations and use them in your great plan of salvation for someone's life. And Lord, may we show that you love folk by our actions. May we show people by our actions that you're interested in them and long to know them and long for them to know you. Oh Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he saved us. We pray we'd see him save many more in this community and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.